Would you take your Bible out with me, please? And I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll read verses 2 through 6 to begin our lesson tonight. We'll spend most of our time this evening in Ephesians chapter 6, but we'll begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2. And this uh, lesson is by request, and hopefully the things we share tonight will be helpful to us in a very practical way that we can take with us and apply tonight and tomorrow and this week as we go about our lives striving to be who God has called us to be. And thank you for being here. Thank you for those who are visiting. Um, we're always grateful for our visitors, and your presence is an encouragement to us. But I'm also grateful for our members and those who have chosen to be here this evening, whether uh, in person or online. Thank you for your presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2. The Apostle Paul, as he is responding to those who have undermined his authority and his apostleship, he says in verse 2, But I beg you that when I am present I may be bold with that confidence by which, some, by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're all here. We're Yes, we're actually literally sitting here. And there are some people out there in the world, I am told, who deny that reality or question that reality. And yet we all know this is where we are. We're in this physical world. But ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if we think that this physical world is all there is, or that this is the only place where there is conflict between good and evil, we are sorely mistaken. There is a spiritual realm, a spiritual world that is far bigger and greater than this one. And it is in that realm where there is a war going on. We walk in the flesh, but there is another world, a spiritual world, where there is constant spiritual battle going on. And I can't explain all that. I can't tell you all the ins and outs of that. But we see that. We see that repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, as we're about to read with Elisha's servant, when Dothan is surrounded by the Syrian army, he prays and his servant's eyes are opened. And Elisha tells him, those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. And his eyes are opened and he sees that. They have chariots and horsemen, but there are angelic armies with fiery chariots all around. Uh, and if we could pull back that curtain and see that spiritual realm... I think it would change our mentality in the way we want to go about fighting as Christians. We're fighting a spiritual battle. There's a war going on. And Paul says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. They're not of the flesh. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And this battle is for our hearts, it's for our minds. And we have weapons that are mighty in God. The New American Standard says, divinely powerful weapons for pulling down the devil's strongholds that he has built in our minds and in our hearts. And Paul and his readers would have been intimately familiar with this image of pulling down strongholds. Less than 100 years earlier, the Roman legions had used siege warfare to demolish at least 100 stone fortresses along the coast of Cilicia. 
And the evidence of that would have still been there at the time of Paul's writing. The, the coast of Cilicia. Well, where was Paul from? He was from a city called Tarsus before he went to Jerusalem to study. And where is Tarsus found? On the coast of Cilicia. Can you imagine this little boy Saul? Can you imagine him running down to the coast and looking at the ruins of those strongholds and thinking to himself, what powerful weapons must there be to do something like this, to pull down these mighty towers and leave them as rubble? That was carnal weaponry. And our spiritual weapons are even more powerful than that. Of course, the image of a Roman soldier with his armor and weapons would have been familiar to all in the ancient world. And Paul uses similar phraseology to describe the divinely powerful weapons that God gives us in Ephesians chapter 6. He calls it the whole armor of God. And this is a, a passage that I think is, is incredibly powerful and practical to us. It's one that we've studied before in thinking about the whole armor of God. But I want to take a little different perspective with it this evening. I want us to focus this evening on that first part, that we are to put on the whole armor of God. We need to understand, find, and most importantly, use this armor and use these weapons. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, that's where most of the rest of our lesson this evening will come from. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And to emphasize what Paul is emphasizing here, I'm going to put the text up on the board as well. Um, this is in the net, the New English translation. Uh, and I'm going to read it from this translation, but you can read along in your translation as well. And as we read, I want to emphasize the commands that Paul gives to us as Christians. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God. So that's a command to us, right? This is what you're supposed to do. Clothe yourselves in the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then echoing what we just read in 2 Corinthians 10, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle, but against the rulers, against the powers against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, again, he says, he commands, it's an imperative, take up the full armor of God. Clothe yourself in this armor. Take it up. This is not a suggestion, it's a command. If we're going to be successful in this battle. So that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. And having done everything to stand. And so he says, stand firm therefore. And he's going to give us four prepositions to describe how we're going to stand. He says by, four times in the net Bible, by these things you are going to stand. Stand therefore by fastening the belt of truth around your waist. This is, this is something that's a preposition, which means it's ongoing action. It's not something you just do one time and you leave it alone. You continue to do this. Continue to fasten the belt of truth around your waist. 
by, number two, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by, number three, fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace, and in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. These four things are ongoing and continuous, but along with it, he gives another imperative. And take. This is something that happens maybe more in terms of just one thing. You do this and then it's done. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And to this end, be alert with all perseverance and petitions or prayers for all the saints. Knowing that these items that are listed here are necessary, even knowing what those things are, is far different from actually taking them up and arming ourselves with them. God supplies these weapons to us freely, but we have to put in the effort to arm ourselves with them. And I think there's something even to the order that Paul chooses in listing the items of this armor and how and when we put them on. Uh, maybe this is a silly uh, question to ask, especially in a sermon, but uh, I saw this question asked uh, not too long ago on the internet. When you put on your shoes, who puts on their shoes sock, sock, shoe, shoe? Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. I'm asking. Yeah. Anybody in here put your shoes on sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Any sock, shoe? Ah, there are a few of you out there. That's, that's strange to me. Uh, but it makes sense to you. And uh, this particular article that I read on the internet said supposedly these people are more gifted. I'll let you think back, maybe even look at the video to see who raised their hand to see if that's actually true or not. But there's something to that order. Well, Paul gives us a spiritual order here, the, the way in which we are to put these things on. And so that's what I want us to consider for the rest of this lesson. Not just what these things are, but have we put on this armor? Have we taken up these weapons so that we might be able to stand firm in the evil day? Because make no mistake, brethren, the days are evil. And if we're going to survive these days, we must use God's weapons and take them up. All right, so let's look at the soldier. Let's see if we can dress this soldier, clothe this soldier in the whole armor of God. He begins there in uh, verse 14, Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Our belt is truth. And the belt is that item that holds everything else together. It's right there in the middle of the soldier. And it allows us to move freely. It's at the very center of our spiritual armor. Without truth, everything else that we might be or do falls apart as Christians. I believe that. Uh, John chapter 8, if you want to turn back over there in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about truth and his relation to truth versus the devil's relationship with truth. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? 
Well, you've got to know the truth and all of the truth. And that's what Jesus came to reveal. We drop down to verse 41. He says, You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, he says. What is the devil's kryptonite? What is the thing that, that causes him to flee? Well, yes, it's God and Christ, but it's the truth. He is a liar and the father of lies. It is with the truth that we can stand against the devil. It is diametrically opposed to who he is and what he knows and the things that he does. He is a liar and the father of lies. And I'll take this so far as to say that the Christian system, everything that we have in Jesus Christ falls apart without truth. Amen? All right, get an amen out of your system now because I'm going to ask you not to amen for the next couple of minutes and I'll tell you why. When I was a teenager, I remember someone making a comment in an adult Bible class that really made an impact on me. The discussion is on, was on why we live the Christian life, and I remember very little about the rest of the discussion, but after many years, this one comment is still very clear in my mind. It went almost exactly like this. Now, I understand this is filtered through 20 years and uh, my perception and all those sorts of things, but this is my memory. This is what's burned in my mind. This, um, this person said this, this Christian said this, even if God doesn't exist, even if the Bible isn't true, even if Christ is not the Son of God, even if it's all a lie, I would still live the Christian life because it is the best life that there is. Uh, now, I read that same quote in a gospel meeting a couple of years ago, and uh, this is why I told you not to amen, because I got two amens from the audience after I read that, and it got really awkward really quickly, <laughs> because that is absolutely untrue. Absolutely untrue. If, if none of this stuff is true, then Christianity is not the best life. Now, don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. That's what the Apostle Paul said, Right? Christianity is not the world's best life if the truth of Christianity is a lie. If something as foundational as Jesus rising from the dead is untrue. If that's not truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Take pity on us as Christians if we only have hope and faith in this life and it's not true anything that we might have in the life to come. And he goes on to say in verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? All of the things that I've been through, all of the persecution that I've endured, all of the pain that I have suffered for the cause of Christ? He says, What does it benefit me? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If it is not true that Christ rose from the dead and we're going to rise from the dead too. And I understand, being charitable, 
I understand, I think, what this person when I was a teenager was trying to say, that there are lots of benefits to living the Christian life, even in this life. But you look at Paul's life, you go through the list that he gives to the Corinthian brethren of all of the things that he experienced being put into prison and scourged and shipwrecked multiple times and all of the persecution that we see. He says, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Why? Because this is true. Now you can say amen. <laughs> because this is true. And the truth is the belt that ties the rest of this together. It is based on the truth of these things that we have strength. And otherwise, it is a hollow religion indeed that we practice. We must, as Christians, be fanatically devoted to truth. The truth, of course, but truth in a more general sense as well. As soon as we allow falsehood to be acceptable under certain circumstances, the devil has his way in. And we live in the disinformation age of social media, filled with rumor and innuendo and gossip and, yes, lies. Everyone has a voice and no one is truly fact-checked. You know who needs to be fact-checked the most? Probably the fact-checkers. And so we need to be careful not to fall into the same trap as Christians where truth is something that can be exchanged for a lie so easily. We put on truth when we devote ourselves wholly to only what is true. And that means that we give up as Christians. We give up little white lies, sure. We also give up falsehoods. There, there's a phrase uh, that I've heard all my life that I've, I've really, really liked. Um, this idea that you're supposed to uh, know all you tell, but you don't have to tell all you know, uh, that's true, right? We're not, we're not required to tell everything that we know. But even in that, we need to be careful that we don't leave things out in order to be intentionally deceptive because ultimately that's not the truth either. We are devoted to truth. And so we put that on, that I live in the truth, I speak the truth in love, and if necessary, I will die for the truth. Why should I die for a lie? I'm going to put on this belt of truth. And closely associated with this belt of truth that ties everything together, our primary form of armor in terms of protection is this breastplate of righteousness. And he says, again, we have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protects the soldier's heart and other vital organs. Our hearts and minds spiritually are protected by this concept of righteousness. Righteousness is right doing, moral uprightness, and virtuous goodness, virtuous goodness and character. I'm pretty sure I stole that from Harold. We have a firm foundation in this life of righteousness. And we think about those two things, truth and righteousness. If we're devoted to those two things, if we put on this belt of truth and this breastplate of righteousness, it simplifies our life, doesn't it? Uh, there's a saying in sports. Um, this is one of the things that I learned when I was playing football. Clear heads make for fast feet. You know what that means? 
Uh, if you don't have a bunch of gobbledygook in your mind about where I'm supposed to be and where exactly on this play, I'm, what position I'm supposed to be in, if you just have clarity of mind, this is my job, this is what I'm supposed to do, then you're going to be faster to do the things that you're supposed to do. And we've seen this, haven't we? If you've ever had a kid who's played any level of sports, you've seen that. You've seen the kid who is thinking about where am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to do next, and usually that doesn't go very well. Then you got this other kid over here who's like, well, I've got a ball. I'm supposed to put that ball in the hoop. I'm going to go put it in the hoop. And that's the kid who does really well, right? Well, for us as Christians, we put on a, a belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and I live my life. What is true, what is righteous as defined by God, 99% of my decisions are already made for me, right? If I put those things on and say my life, my character is defined by truth and righteousness, then all I have to determine is what is true, what is righteous, and do that. I'm not left with a bunch of uh, ambiguous decisions that I have to make in my life. Now, sure, there are occasionally times where, where there might be more than one thing that is true and righteous, and I have to make the wise choice, absolutely. But more often than not, with truth and righteousness, my decisions are made. And this is a solid foundation that I just believe and speak and think on and go with and do what is true and righteous. But how do I know? How do I know what is true and righteous? Well, that's the next thing. Verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 6. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that good news of peace, the sandals of the Roman foot soldier were composed of thick leather soles studded with cleats of iron. And this would give the soldier good footing during a battle. He can stand and march with confidence. And nothing gives us more confidence and strength like being fully prepared, knowing what I'm supposed to be doing and how to do it. And that's true of lots of areas of life. You think about a test that you're going to have to take at school. Young people, you listening? You got to take a test. What makes you feel good going into that test? If you've studied, you know exactly what's going to be on the test and you're ready to put in those answers, right? You're prepared for what it is you're about to face. And the same thing is true at work. The same thing is true at play. In, in all aspects of our life, if we're prepared, then we have a, a confidence based on that foundation. What provides that for us as Christians so that we know what is true and righteous? It's the gospel. The gospel system provides that for us. It tells me how to live my life. There is not confusion or uncertainty, maybe about specific decisions, certainly, but not in general. I don't have confusion because I know who I am, I know where I'm going, and I know how I'm going to get there by the good news of the gospel. So how do I put that on? How do I shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace? That means I have to read and study the Word of God. That's how I put it on. I need the faith that Harold preached about last week, the system of faith for every matter of life or doctrine or practice. I need to find everything that the Bible has to say about that subject. I need to put them all down. I need to draw a line under them, add them all up, and whatever I'm left with, that's what I need to do. This preparation of the gospel of peace is looking at the good news, the faith, the truth, the gospel in, in wide terms, the Bible, and all that God has communicated to us and says, and says put that on. Know what it is God would have you to do in this broad sense. 
And if you do, then you're going to have your shoes on so that you know where it is you're supposed to go in truth and righteousness. Uh, I can be prepared on how to walk, even as we see right here in Ephesians chapter 5, how to walk in love, how to walk in light, how to walk in wisdom. Then he says, verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 6, Above all, above all taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Uh, above all means this is super important, right? We think about uh, fiery darts, arrows. You say, well, why do I need a shield if I already have a breastplate and I have my belt and, and I know I'm going to put a helmet on here in just a little bit. We're going to talk about that, right? I already have this breastplate. Well, the fact of the matter was most arrows would be stopped by a Roman breastplate. So if it's just a plain old arrow and somebody shoots it, unless they found a, a gap in your armor, if it hit your breastplate, it wasn't going to go through it. Um, these were well made to protect these soldiers. But you know what turned out to be a huge problem for the Roman armies? It was when they would take those arrows, they'd put tar or something on the end of them, uh, they would dip it in that tar, they would light it on fire, and then they would shoot it. Because these arrows would come and they wouldn't penetrate the armor. What they would do is they would hit that armor and then that tar would splash up all over the soldier and you'd burn to death. And so in order to protect against that, they had these giant shields like what you see right here. And these shields were used in all sorts of uh, inventive and, and unique ways by Roman soldiers. Uh, as long as they had their shields... Uh, then they could protect themselves in a lot of different ways. And so too for us, our faith is that shield to protect us against the fiery darts of the devil. If we have all of these other things that, that we have talked about and will talk about, but we don't have faith, well then we're going to fall away in times of temptation or persecution. We need to be so careful to know what we believe so we are able to defend ourselves against the onslaught of Satan. Uh, one of my favorite things that uh, we know about these shields, one Roman soldier with one shield was powerful. But you get a group of Roman soldiers together with all of their shields. Have you seen some of the modern uh, recreations of the different formations that these Roman soldiers use, putting shields above their heads, putting shields all in front of them, and, and they go into like these turtle formations where it's virtually impenetrable. And I like that because it goes along so well with our congregational focus of being better together. When it comes to the shield of faith, it is not just my faith on an island all by myself. I take this up, and so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so do you. And together, with all of our faith combined, we're able to protect ourselves against even the worst fiery dart attacks of the wicked one. In our faith, we are not alone. I don't have to do this by myself. And that begins with my faith in Christ, that he is, as he has promised to be, already the victor over sin and death and Satan. The war is already won. And so now I just need to continue to fight until he comes again. Jesus Christ has won the war, and if I'm on his side, I'm going to win too. Believe that and trust him. And that faith we take up as our shield. And then verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation 
we receive or take the salvation from God. He gives it to us, right? He gives us this salvation, but we have to put it on. We have to take it from Him. Um, and we can, we can uh, hold our head up. We can see what's coming because we're secure in our salvation. We know that we're right with God. And there are some folks out there who seem to have helmets that don't, don't fit very well because uh, they're always falling off, right? And they're always unsure about whether they're saved or not. That's not what is described here. It is a helmet that securely fits on our head so we are ready for whatever it is we might face. And, of course, that comes from our confidence in, in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he is offering. Uh, if you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 59, we see this same image of the armor of God used there. Isaiah chapter 59, for just a moment. Isaiah 59, notice verses 1 and 2. This is the situation that we're in without God, without Christ, without salvation. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Uh, we're separated from God because of our sins. And if we drop down to verse 15 of uh, the same chapter, there's an unfortunate verse here, this uh, the second half of verse 15 actually begins a new thought. It, it says in the New King James, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16, He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And he goes on to describe this situation. This is, in the Old Testament, the armor of God, using the same phraseology that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. God gave us this salvation. And while I can take it off if I so choose, it's not going to fall off because it doesn't fit right. I can have confidence in this salvation because it is God who gave it, that there is an intercessor Jesus Christ, a means to be forgiven even when I fall short. And so this is not one of those ongoing prepositions that we talked about at the beginning of the lesson. This is just a command. Take it. Take this salvation that God is offering and put it on that your head and your heart might be protected from the devil. Be saved God's way under God's conditions. And you would think this is a really great place to end the lesson, wouldn't you? But even with that salvation, there are still a couple of things that we have to put on. And we know that to be true. We come in humble submission. We put Christ on in baptism. We come up out of the water fresh and clean and holy. And we say, this is great. This is awesome. And then the next morning, maybe even that evening, we're tempted again. Maybe even we fall into sin again. And so even with this secure helmet of salvation, there are a couple of other things that we need. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our weapon. This is how we fight back. Satan fears it more than anything else because it works against him better than anything else. Now it's interesting. 
There are two kinds of swords that soldiers would have used in Paul's day. One was a long, broad sword that you think two hands, and you make these big swings with this long, broad sword. The other uh, is the type of sword that's referred to in this passage that every infantryman in the Roman army would have carried. It's what you see right here on the screen behind me, this short sword, this dagger-like sword that would have been between one and two feet long, a small sword used in close combat. And Paul doesn't leave us guessing as to what this sword refers to. He calls it the sword of, the sword that is supplied by the Spirit. And what is the Spirit supplied to us? The Word of God. He makes that clear. And the word that Paul uses for the word of God here is interesting also. It's not the normal one that you would expect. We're used to that word logos, uh, logos for word, right? Jesus was the word, the logos for the written word of God. That's not the word that he uses here. He uses another Greek word, rima. And that word is for the spoken word of God. We've already talked about having... uh, Uh, having the preparation of the gospel of peace, the whole of God's message, right? This is a smaller, more precise sort of weapon. It's not so much scripture as a category, but instead it refers to talking and speaking a particular passage of scripture, a, a particular specific portion of God's word. It's not a big broad sword. We talk about this. This is my sword, right? I'm not swinging the whole Bible trying to get the devil to go back. What I'm doing is I'm finding a specific portion of the Bible, and I am quoting that in response to what the devil says to me. Uh, what does all that mean? How do we put that on? You've got to memorize Scripture. You've got to get this into your mind and into your heart. In Matthew chapter 4, When Jesus is tempted by the devil, how does he respond? He responds with the rima, the spoken word of God. He says out loud three times with what we would call like quoting a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, it is written. And if you want to take up this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that means getting the word of God into your mind and into your heart. Yes, that can mean taking out your Bible or taking out your phone and finding a specific a portion of scripture that applies to what you're struggling with. But a lot of times in the moment, we don't have time for that. What we have to do is we have to have this word already ready. We've taken out our sword. It's in our hand and we're ready to respond to the devil. So to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you have to know where the devil's going to tempt you, what temptations you have and have specific portions of scripture that you can quote in response to that. Find the scripture you need for the situations where you're tempted and memorize those. Go over them again and again and again. That's called sharpening your sword, right? And if we do that, then we can take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then finally, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance, and supplication for all the saints. Being watchful and persevering is found in prayer. Despite despite all these weapons, we still realize to be successful in the fight, we must be watchful and we must preserve. 
How do we do that? We do so with prayer. All the weapons in the world do a soldier no good if he's asleep when the attack comes, right? And we can be equipped with all of these wonderful, divinely inspired weapons from God. But if we aren't being watchful, if we aren't sticking to it with perseverance, then the devil can and will attack us. How do we do it? How do we take up this kind of watchfulness? It is through prayer, an appeal to God. And that's how we're going to win anyway, right? You're not getting the wrong idea from all of this that somehow we are the ones who are going to win by our own means and our own devices. No. It's through the weapons that God provides that we have a chance to fight against the evil one. And an appeal to God in faith can lead us to victory. Pray knowing that God will answer, that God can heal, that God can protect, that God can do anything. And I submit to His will because it is what is best for me. And so I leave you with this this evening. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Brethren, let us stand, not alone, but with Christ and one another by taking up the whole armor of God. And if we can help you to do that even this evening, whether that's putting on the helmet of salvation that you've never put on or whether we can offer prayers on your behalf, there's nothing that would make us happier than to help a fellow soldier, a fellow brother or sister in Christ in their battle against Satan. If we can do that tonight, come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Oh, God.